Oh, good morning to you all. Um, <laughs> let's just bow our heads as we come to God's word. <laughs> Heavenly Father, still our minds now and through your Holy Spirit, focus our hearts on what your word has to say to us. And then, Lord, take what we know in our hearts to our hands and our mouths to preach your gospel, to bring your glory in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, verses 3 and 4. So... Please, can you turn there now? The first thing I want to discuss with you today is string theory. Now, in physics, string theory is a theoretical framework in which the point-like particles of particle physics are replaced by one-dimensional objects called strings. String theory describes how these strings propagate through space and interact with each other. On distance scales larger than the string scale, a string looks just like an ordinary particle with its mass, charge and other properties determined by the vibrational state of the string. In string theory, one of the many vibrational states of the string corresponds to the graviton, a quantum mechanical particle that carries gravitational force. Thus, string theory is a theory of quantum gravity. Is everybody with me so far? Yeah. Great. <laughs> So can I go on to uh, discuss n-dimensional matrices? No, no, okay. Well, that's not surprising at all, is it? Even Wikipedia's very best efforts to explain string theory in ordinary language is a waste of time for 99.99% of us, just because the ideas being presented are millions and millions of miles away from our daily reality. So I think we can be forgiven for not being able to explain string theory. Well, how about explaining something simpler? For example, making a cup of tea using a tea bag. How would you feel if you tried to explain that to somebody and they just looked at you blankly? What? They didn't get it at all. This is sometimes how we feel when we try to explain the gospel to others. It might have a few different bits to it, but for a believer, none of the main ideas are hard to understand at all. The gospel is not at all like string theory, and so we end up being very confused why something that is so simple and obvious to us is so difficult and obscure to others. So what is the problem then? Well, today the reason for this will be plainly revealed to us by Paul, and so we can look at some ways to deal with it. So let's read our text now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from the top verse 1 just to keep the sense of the text. Therefore, through God's mercy, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
As always, we have to place what we can see here in context. As we read in this text, we hold on to our, in our minds the knowledge that Paul's ministry in Corinth is under attack by those pesky Judaizers. Now, you're going to hear me saying Judaizers over and over and over as we go through these passages in Corinthians. Please don't get bored. You always have to keep that in mind. So they claim that he's preaching an insufficient gospel, that he's actually hiding some of the truth. And that's why he speaks against these claims in verse 2 about not using deception or distortion to promote God's word. But Paul knows that there really is a genuine problem with understanding the gospel for another reason entirely. And here in verses 3 and 4, we can see what it is and why it is. Even his very clearest and most honest explanation of the gospel is still not understood by some of those who hear it. Why is that? It's veiled to them, he says. Now here, we mustn't misunderstand the meaning of the word veiled. Because today, if I say, if I use the word veil, you might generally think about a bride's veil, something gauzy where you can make out the outline of the bride's face, but you can't actually see any detail. But that's not what's meant here. The Greek word that's used for veil, it means to be covered right over, completely hidden, like when the sea covers up a rock at high tide and there's no trace of it anymore. So what Paul means here is that the unbeliever cannot see the gospel at all. Although the tide is a very good illustration of the meaning of veiled, sadly it is not a perfect metaphor because the tide will dutifully retreat in its time and the rocks will be visible again. And that's not the case with the veiling described here. I want to emphasize this term sadly, very specifically, because the way that the sentence is constructed in its original form gives us a very sobering picture. It tells us that the veiling is both permanent and it's continuous. It goes on and on and on. It doesn't mean that it's some kind of enduring inconvenience like a permanently itchy finger. There is a more serious consequence. Our text says that this way of life is the way of those who are perish-ing. That ing-en means that the perish-ing is something that's going on all the time and it's a destination because one inevitably leads to the next. Now, given the general greyness of hair or lack thereof that I can see from the pulpit today, I'm sure that most of us understand the physical reality that literally everyone is perishing or dying by degrees. We have dodgy knees. Every year we get thicker and thicker spectacles and waists. We know where the passage of time is inevitably leading us. But Paul is not speaking about normal wear and tear here. Rather, he is talking about the condition of the unbeliever spiritually, both now and then later when their body dies. You see, when an unbelieving person sins, and all of us, everybody, sins a lot, we immediately become dead to God. From that point on, he won't have anything at all to do with us, and that will be our permanent state here on earth. Perishing. However, this doesn't mean a pointless standoff with God looking one way and the sinner looking the other, only ending when the sinner returns to the dust that they came from. No, there are real and serious consequences for both states. 
In the first instance, the living unbeliever is cut off completely from God's support and intervention in their lives. They have no one to turn to in times of trouble, and God will not use his power to help them in any way. But worst of all, there is no hope for later. For when they physically die, they will only face the Lord's judgment and punishment forever. And let me be very clear here that there is no time off or allowances for good deeds, no matter how impressive they may be. That's a lie that far too many people believe. Now that's all very well when you fleetingly think about someone whose vision is thus veiled but maybe lives far away, in Ekatahuna, for example. And so you never have and you never will meet them. But it's another thing when you look closer to home. What about your mother or brother or sister or husband or closest friend? What if they are the ones who are permanently and continuously perishing behind that veil of unbelief and so they must suffer its consequences? It's a very difficult and painful thing to consider. And to up the discomfort level a little bit more, I want to add that it ought to be a difficult and painful thing to contemplate for anyone. Even the tattooed fellow on the holly with the gang patch. Simply because the Lord's final judgment is a truly awful thing for anyone to have to face. If we have any understanding at all of how the Lord has saved us from our own sins, then we should not want that for anyone, mainly because that's where God's heart is. He does not want anyone to perish. Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now with that statement, if you've been listening to what I've been saying, it appears that maybe I've created a problem because on the one hand, we know that we and God have a desire that all sinners should be saved. But on the other hand, it looks like they can't because here in 2 Corinthians it says they've had a veil put over their eyes and so they are completely unable to ever see or understand the truth. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, so maybe we should just ignore those bits or throw the whole thing away. Contemplate our own spirituality. Well, that can't be right, because if Scripture isn't 100% reliable, then we never have a chance of definitely knowing what is right and wrong. So to resolve our problem, let me offer you three thoughts that will maybe help you to better understand how the veil sits where it does and and whether or not there is any hope at all for the wearer. Let's call them composition, compromise, and compassion. And they are all intertwined. Firstly, composition. What do you think the veil is made from? Well, I don't think it's some kind of super carbon nanofiber fabric that's been applied with liberal amounts of Gorilla Glue, and so it can't ever be removed. If that's so, then we must believe that there is no hope at all for some folk. Because it means that Satan, who is the god of this world, as put here, 
He has all the power to take them out of the game permanently. Just because, just on a whim. I don't like his hair. I'm going to put a veil over his face. I do believe that the veil is made from temptation and lies and has been from the very beginning. Hey, look, here's a nice apple. Did God really say you shouldn't eat it? Look how wonderful it will be when you do eat it. You will be just like him. At that moment, human spiritual blindness began and it's carried on right up to this very day. We are still being told lies by Satan about God's existence, his character, and his purposes. And then he offers us alternatives that excite our senses so much that we hold those things up high, those wrong things, instead of the things that are right. Next, compromise. If lies and temptation is the stuff of blindness, what is the glue that binds it to us? Compromise. To compromise means that for the sake of making things easier, you settle for less than the best. You choose the easier path because it is less steep, although it does not take you to the best viewpoint. The Lord has very graciously given everyone the freedom to choose their path. But it is up to us, each of us, to use that gift wisely. We can compromise our relationship to him by taking that shiny, juicy fruit and biting it, or we can refuse compromise and turn away. That is certainly within our power. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy because the temptation can be huge and relentless, and Satan knows exactly which buttons to push for each of us. In the end, though, we do choose whether to wear that veil or not, and therefore we are personally responsible for the consequences of doing so. And these are big problems. So how do we fix these things, composition and compromise? Well, the answer is compassion, and only one kind of that. One of my very favorite scriptures is James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It reminds me that God's heart and power is big enough to pull me out of my sin. His compassion is bigger than the composition of sin and bigger than the compromise in sin. For the Lord, capital Lord, the Lord of hosts, the veil is no barrier at all. He and he alone can brush past it and reveal the truth of his gospel to anyone he chooses. And we must remember that Satan, even though he's much more powerful than us, he is also a created being, and therefore he is always subject to his creator. So after all, the situation is not as hopeless as it seems. Although the veil is offered by temptation and held in place by our own choice, there is one for whom these things are no barrier at all. God and God's compassion alone can heal these things. So what, what can we do? What is our part left then as believers today? If God is the only one who can take the veil away, what do we do? Verse 4 reads, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has blinded the minds. I want you to note Satan's point of attack here. He acts on the mind of the unbeliever, not the heart or the spirit. Now that tells us something. It tells us that the gospel is a rational, fact-based thing. It's not as so many people claim a fairy story for the weak-minded. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died on the cross for our sins. Jesus really will return in glory to judge us all. You really can have a relationship with God if you repent of your sins and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so you really do have the hope of eternity with him on a new earth where there'll be no pain and sorrow. Really. That brings me back to the point I made earlier. What about those brothers, sisters, wives, husbands and friends? What about the tattooed bloke on the Harley? What about him? What can we do for those who have that veil? Well, if the point of Satan's attack is, as we see here, the mind, that's where we might also begin. Is that a scriptural idea? Let's go and look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, although at the time this text was specifically written to warn Israel to repent, from our perspective today, it's also a really amazing prophecy about what Jesus will accomplish for sinners by his death on the cross. And remember, this was written nearly 700 years before his birth. But I want you to note how the Lord says here, let us reason. Let's reason together. He doesn't say, hey, let me show you a bunch of miracles so you'll believe. Or, I'm going to make you believe whether you like it or not. No, he says, let us reason together. And we see a similar sort of thing later in chapter 43. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case so that you may be acquitted. Now we could replace this word contend with argue or debate to help us understand the meaning a bit better because it's kind of an old-fashioned word. But I think it's clear. This is another call to use reason to establish a proper relationship with God. How about the New Testament? Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 4. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So here's some good scriptural evidence to show that reasoning, demonstrating, and explaining with and to someone is a legitimate way to present the gospel to them. Now, at this point, I'm going to assume that you do have the necessary knowledge to do that properly. And 
<laughs> I'll leave it up to you to decide if that's the case. And if not, what you might need to do, we all know what we have done and what we have left undone. So I'll leave that question to work in your heart. But I do need to ask another. Assuming that you are good to go in Theology 101, what will happen when you lay it on your unbelieving friend? Well, sometimes, after two minutes of your best gospel logic, they're going to leap up and shout, Yes! Sign me up, mate! But a lot of the time, that's not going to work. Why? Because just like it says here, they've been blinded by the God of this world, Satan. They just, they just can't understand what you're saying. If it didn't always work for Isaiah, Peter or Paul, <laughs> it's not going to work for you either. So, if you fail, and if you know you might fail, does this mean don't try at all? No, we can't do that because we know that we all have a given duty to do this work for God. We are called by Him to take the gospel to all nations. What we do not know is who God will and will not call, and so we must take every chance we get. But remembering always... We are not God. This is not our gospel and it is not ever only our efforts alone that will bring a person to repentance. It is only ever God's grace through Christ. And it says here it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is Jesus who makes the blind to see, not us. So while we apply theology 101, we must also be applying prayer 101, many times more so. We must appeal to the Father through the Son that His Holy Spirit will open the eyes of this blind person to the truth of the Gospel, for that is a thing we simply cannot do. Our job is to tell them so that they know the Gospel. We tell them so that they know the Gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can tear the veil away to make them see the Gospel glory. If that is so, do you truly believe that what you want them to know is really, truly worth knowing? Or are you just doing it as some kind of duty? Maybe because the guy in the pulpit has made you feel a bit guilty. Well, to help with an answer, let's talk a bit about this word gospel. Through preparation for this sermon and some other reading lately, I've come to feel that we've lost sight of its real power. In this very text, it is presented to us as the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, the good news that the gospel proclaims is compared to the glory of Christ, which in turn is the same as God's glory. Well, how impressive do you think that might be? There's a special word for that sort of brightness. Effulgence. Effulgence. It means brightness taken to an extreme, the sort of brilliance you might expect from a giant star. Now, <laughs> it's impressive enough trying to look at our own sun at noon with a naked eye. Just try to imagine that instead of squinting from 150 million kilometers away, you were able to get up real close, say, a measly one million kilometers. What would the effect be then? 
It would stun you. It would dazzle you. It would probably toast you to a crisp. And this is what the gospel is being compared to. To Christ's effulgent glory. We get a similar picture of the word special meaning when we look at how it was used at the time the New Testament was written. The gospel in Greek is a compound word and it means to proclaim or tell. It literally means good news or glad tidings. In secular Greek it was originally referred to as a reward for good news and later became the good news as we are talking about today. In its day, gospel was commonly used in the Greco-Roman culture as a technical term for news of victory. A messenger arrives, he raises his right hand in greeting and he calls out with a loud voice, Rejoice! We are victorious! And by his appearance it's known already that he brings good news. His face is shining, his spear is decked with laurel, his head is crowned. He swings a branch of palms. And so joy fills the city, sacrifices are offered, the temples are garlanded, a race is held, crowns are put on for sacrifices, and the one to whom the message is owed is honored with a wreath. So gospel, good news, is closely linked with the thought of victory in battle. So when we combine this image of the gospel being compared to the effulgent glory of Christ and then add to it how the word was used back in the day to describe only really momentous events, we now properly know the answer to our question about the value of its message. Should everyone really know about it, even if they cannot yet see it? Yes! Is it really, really big and good and worth knowing? Yes! We must hold it high. There is nothing in the whole of creation that is more worthy to share. It cost Jesus his very life to make it so. It is the best news ever, anywhere, and since that is so, it must be worth our every effort to bring it to everyone, to bring its healing brilliance to those who are blind. So, who will you shine it on today? Who? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to bring your word to those that we can't imagine it making any sense to. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to keep on praying for them, even though it looks as though nothing has happened. And Lord, we pray that your gospel, your good news, will become just that for so many, many more people in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.